And uh, we are, as the, you can tell from the screen there, we're continuing the subject of baptism, and we're continuing to look at some of the texts that the Pado-Baptists use to support infant baptism. Pado simply meaning child, and uh, then the word Baptist, which is uh, the what is called, what are often called uh, of those who believe in infant baptism. Um, we believe in child baptism. We just don't believe in infant baptism. But anyway, we're going to continue our examination of these texts today. Hopefully we'll get through the two major texts that we plan to look at, but I'm not sure that we will. We will have to take it as it comes and see if we get all the way through them. But uh, I'd like for us to uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our time here this morning. And um, let me see, Vic, would you open us in prayer, please? <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come today and praise you for having your hand on the weather and how you make special things special. Beautiful Sunday morning, you give us an extra special dose of a bright, clear day with a warm sun so that we might come together and worship you. Father, I thank you for Larry and the in-depth study review he's done to take the tenets of your scripture on this topic and make it easy for us to understand. I ask that you bless our time together, that our minds will be clear and our ears sharp to hear that. And we wish us to thank for this today. Please thank you for your Amen. Well, last time we got to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14, and I said that we would address that or discuss that particular topic this week, and we are going to do that. But uh, there are some things that I wanted to sh- share with you that's just kind of a uh, back burner sort of things that are uh, been on my heart that I want to make sure that I communicate. And so I'm going to take just a, a couple of minutes here to uh, deal with those and, and mention those to you. I feel like that as we're dealing with this um, topic and as we are being polemical and talking about the reasons why we don't uh, accept the idea of infant baptism, that it can give the impression that we, or the I maybe, um, are less concerned about infants and children than our Pater-Baptist brothers and sisters. And I want to ensure you, uh, assure you that that is not the case. And if you'll indulge me just a brief little uh, personal comment or, or biographical sketch. Uh, from the time that my own children were conceived and my wife, my, my wife and I prayed for them, we dedicated them to the Lord. We gave our children to the Lord, recognizing that they are a gift from God, that we are just stewards. And before they could ever even really understand, we would sing Christian songs to them and teach them scripture and biblical truth. We had daily devotions with them. We catechized them. We uh, memorized scripture with them. We brought them to church without fail, um, unless they were sick or we were sick. We took them to our in-home Bible studies. Um, we enrolled them in a Christian school or else we did homeschooling, taught them at home. Uh, so they could have strong Christian influence in that regard. And uh, so I just want you to know that we, when, when I'm presenting this material, it is not coming from a person who thinks that infants and children are unimportant. They are vitally important. We dare not um, fail our children. 
Um, and don't think when I'm saying all this, I'm not trying to brag. I'm not trying to you know tell you how great I am because I'm very aware of the many failures that I have had, and I would do things differently in many ways. Um, I fully recognize that anything that has ever come of good in my children is is by God's grace and His grace alone. But I just want you to know that while this series challenges the notion of infant baptism, it does not mean that I am uh, that I think that the training of our children from infancy on, onward is unimportant in some way. It is vitally important, and we dare not um, we dare not neglect it. Uh, and by the way, just kind of along those lines, did you know that according to the Pado Baptists, our children are covenant children because they're born from Christian parents? And so, if you were to ask a Pado Baptist, well, then uh, what advantage do the children who are been who've been uh, baptized as an infant, what advantage do they have? Well, they say, well, they have the promise of God. What R.C. Sproul would tell you, they've got the promise of God. Does that mean that our children don't have the promise of God? <laughs> well, yeah, they have the promise of God. So I really, it kind of turns out that there's really not much of a difference other than the infant's got some water sprinkled on their head. Um, now, there are some who would put a lot more import into infant baptism than that. And that gets into some uh, difficult areas when they start saying that it washes away sin and that it, wa- and it washes away original sin and things like that. That starts getting into some pretty serious doctrinal differences and even could lead you into heresy. But anyway, um, I just want to make that comment. Um, and then I want to make a comment about... Uh, we've been talking about the covenant of grace in the past. We're not going to talk about that so much this morning, but I want to make it clear that there are good Reformed Baptist brothers who don't agree with my particular view of the covenant of grace, and they think there is such a thing as a covenant of grace, uh, which is an overarching plan of salvation of which uh, different biblical covenants are an administration. Um, These are good brothers with whom I would just disagree in that particular area and probably agree with them on just about everything else except perhaps that one thing. Um, At the same time, questioning the existence of the so-called covenant of grace did not originate with me, even though I taught this way back in 1982, or maybe even before. There are others who were then and are now questioning the doctrine of the covenant of grace as it is typically presented in, let's say, the Westminster Confession. And I already quoted uh, from Stephen Wellam, professor at... uh, uh, Southern Seminary. Let me also give you a couple of, another quote here from another book that's been put out called The New Covenant Theology by Tom Wells and Fred Zaspel, just to give you an idea that this is not something that uh, I alone am saying. Here's what he says on page uh, 45. Nevertheless, it now seems clear that a mistake has been made in speaking of this purpose, meaning God's overarching purpose of redemption, his eternal plan of salvation. It says that the mistake has been made in speaking of this purpose as the covenant of grace. We may agree in asserting the unity of God's purpose through the ages, but the selection of the word covenant to describe this unity has lent itself to important misunderstandings. And I think those are the... It's those misunderstandings that I am trying to avoid by not using a term uh, that the scriptures don't 
use. I'm not using the word covenant in a way that the Bible doesn't use them. And the third comment I want to make here is that what actually controls my thinking more than anything else in not only in this area of the covenant of grace, but in, in all areas, the thing that controls my thinking more than anything else other than the Holy Spirit is what does the text of Scripture in its context say? Now, I appreciate systematic theology, and there's a need for it. I appreciate historical theology. I appreciate church history. I appreciate books, sermons, confessions. Those are all great. But the one thing that influences me the most is what the actual text of Scripture says. You might call that exegetical theology. You have to be able to exegete it from the text. If you can't exegete it from the text, then I have a problem. If you go to the doctrine of of the two natures of Christ, if you can't exegete texts that show you that Jesus is man, and you can't exegete texts that show you that Jesus is God, then you don't have reason to call him the God-man. You should be able to go to texts of Scripture. And that's what drives me more than anything else. Systematics is good, and I appreciate it, and, and I benefit from it. But I think there's a certain priority to the exegesis of the text. Now, I know there's a certain reciprocity as well. I'm fully aware of that. But I still think there's a kind of priority to the exegesis of biblical texts in their context. And so I want you to be aware that that's what drives me in terms of what I'm going to teach to you. And, and brothers and sisters, if I can't go to texts of Scripture to teach you something, I don't believe I can lay that on your heart and your conscience and your mind. And I, I'm just not going to do that. At least I don't intend to do that. Okay. Um, and then last point is I want to make it clear that, that not all Paedo-Baptists um, agree as to the significance and the actual interpretation of all these passages that we are using, that we're talking about. There's some variation there. Um, they don't all use them exactly the same way, but I think they all pretty much use them. And so I'm going to try to um, give you what I think is the most common or even the most, um, uh, the interpretation that will come from those with whom we would agree the most. All right, so those are my preliminary comments. Got those uh, done for you. And uh, so now let's go on and take a look at this next passage. We're looking at passages that, that uh, Paedo-Baptists use to um, support or corroborate their view of um, infant baptism. And last week I put on the board here this passage from 1 Corinthians 7.14. By the way, uh, does everybody here have a copy of the handout that I gave you in the back? If you don't, please make sure you get one. Just get up, feel free, be, and uh, get a, There should be two pages. You need um, both pages. All right, so 1 Corinthians 7.14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And the Pedro Baptist will look at this passage and they will say, well, you see what it says there at the end? Your children uh, are holy. Even with the... Uh, 
just having one believing parent, the children are called holy. And therefore, we regard them as saints. So, um, here's a... Here's what um, A.A. Hodge says about this passage. A.A. Hodge, the son of Charles Hodge. He says, if only one of the parents is a Christian, the children are said to be holy or saints, which is a common designation of church members in the New Testament. And so, and uh, Dr. Strabage, for example, would call them saints. So <clears throat> this is the, the text of the scripture that they would go to to point to the, uh, the, the notion that children are saints. And the word holy there, the word sanctified, and the word that is often translated saints, all come from the same Greek root. Hagiazo, the verb, hagias, the, the adjective. And so in this passage, when it says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, or the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband, it's the verb form, hagiazo. If it says your children are holy, that is the, the adjective form, um, hagias. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I think that in order for us to really understand what Paul is saying here in this passage, and I believe the Pastor Mark has dealt with this uh, to some degree in the past, we need to really, it's very important that we look at the whole context. So let's look and see what the whole ta- context says. Now prior to verse 12 and verse 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul is talking to two married believers. <clears throat> and he deals with uh, a situation where these two married believers are maybe separated from one another or <clears throat> thinking about getting a divorce. And he tells them, you know, don't do it. Then in verse 12, he goes on and says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, what does he mean there? To the rest, he's talking about those who are not two married believers, but an unbeliever and a believer. Another case, another situation. All right. Somebody married to an unbeliever. What do you do then? And then when he says, I say, not the Lord, he doesn't mean that what I'm saying is not inspired. He recognizes that what he is saying is inspired He simply means when the Lord Jesus was on the earth, he did not deal with this particular case. It was the Lord Jesus who dealt with the case of two believers being married to one another and what they should do. So the Lord Jesus specifically dealt with that when he was on the earth. But um, he didn't deal with a case of one believer and an unbeliever. And that's what Paul is dealing with here, and that's what he's talking about. So he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife, who was an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now, what is the context here? What's he dealing with? What's the situation? Is he dealing with baptism? No, he's dealing with marriage relationship of a believer and an unbeliever. And he's telling them what you to do. If you have an unbelieving Spouse, live with that person if they consent to live with you. Now in Corinth, Corinth was a very kind of a metropolitan area, a lot of uh, traffic coming through there. There were uh, multiple kinds of people living in in the city. And so uh, there very well could have been, and, and no doubt were, individuals who became Christians, but not both in a marriage relationship. 
So one of the parties becomes a Christian, the other one doesn't. Now they might think to themselves, well, I know Paul has told the Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked. So now I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked. My spouse hasn't become a Christian. What am I going to do? I should divorce them, right? No, Paul's saying no. Or uh, maybe a, you know, a different situation where some, for some reason, the person who became a Christian and has become a Christian and their mate has not, for whatever reason, if that mate who is an unbeliever is willing to live with you, then you live with them. That's what he's saying. And that's the situation that he's dealing with. Now look at verse 4. Gives a reason. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. So he uses the term sanctified. Now the word sanctified, as I said, hagiazo, that has a, a variety of meanings. And it can mean, and its root meaning is to, to be set apart. To be set apart. Um, it can mean being set apart in multiple ways. If you go back to the Hebrew word behind that, kadesh, it can even be being set apart as a cult prostitute or as a temple prostitute. So it has a wide variety of, of uh, meanings. And I believe that, it, that uh, for us to take the meaning that he is actually causing an individual to be sanctified in the sense that we often use it to refer to a person who's gotten saved and they're by that after being saved more and more growing in holiness. That's not what he's talking about. That's obvious. We, we simply are, we could not say that, uh, because you have a believer here and an unbeliever here and this believer, uh, you know, trusts the Lord that suddenly somehow this guy becomes a believer and is being sanctified by virtue of the faith of the believer. No, that's not what he's saying. And to push that language in that direction is, uh, to get you into really serious trouble. So verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. That's the heart of what he is, is um, saying here. Then he goes on to say, for otherwise, kind of throwing in the idea of the children, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Actually, I believe you could actually turn, leave that little phrase out about the children and he'd still, his argument would still remain the same. You could simply read, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Verse 15, yet if the unbeliever, unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. But he throws in the idea of infants in here, actually not even infants, children in here, as a kind of corroborating uh, argument that your children would be unclean your children would not be holy set apart if uh if this were not the case and so what he is saying i believe by this translation the word sanctified he is not saying as i said that that makes them a christian and, and before i tell you what i do think it is saying let me make this comment that whatever he is saying with regard to the children he is also saying with regard to the parents, okay, or to the spouse. So if you're going to say that this makes them saints, that it makes the infant a saint because he has a believing parent, you're going to also have to say 
It makes the unbelieving spouse a saint because as a believing spouse. That's, that's very important to recognize in this passage. And the, you know, the thing that's odd about that is, is, uh, there's a whole long list. John Murray, John Calvin, Henry, both of the Hodges, Marcel, Sydenham, Poole, Sproul, Strawbridge, the Westminster Confession of Faith, many others. You know what? They don't make that point. They kind of ignore it. It kind of gets overlooked. Although I did hear one paid Baptist say that, yeah, if you have an unbelieving spouse and you're a believer and that unbelieving spouse comes to me and wants me to baptize them, I'll baptize them. But I'm at least trying to be consistent. All right. Well, what's the key issue? Well, it has to do with the meaning of the term hagiadzo. I believe that it means that the unbeliever and likewise the child is set apart as a valid or legitimate spouse or offspring. It is simply saying that the marriage vows and bond are still valid even after one of the spouses has become a believer. It doesn't dissolve the union just because you become a believer and your spouse has not. And likewise, your children are legitimate um, they are not to be considered illegitimate children. And you can also have more kids. You might be married to an unbeliever. doesn't mean you can't have more kids as well, as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to, to live with you in a, in a marriage relationship. And by the way, the, the verb tense there, of the word sanctified, we have it translated, it almost looks like it's present tense, but it's actually a perfect tense. <clears throat> which means something that happened in the past with results continuing on into the future. And I believe that what that means is that they were married in the past and they continue to be married. You are continuing to be married. Not It doesn't matter if you become a believer. That doesn't dissolve your marriage. The marriage vows that you took in the past continue on and extend into uh, the present. <clears throat> So we got to be very careful that we don't read more into this text than is there. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 16. Let's go back to verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So if the unbeliever wants to dissolve the marriage, the word leave there is a strong word. It has to do with being divorced. If the unbeliever wants to divorce you, you, you aren't bound. The divorce can happen. So, with regard to two believers, the only grounds, biblical grounds for divorce are, is adultery. With regard to a believer and an unbeliever, adultery or abandonment of the marriage by the unbelieving party is grounds for divorce. And, you know, of course, you, you throw in there too, the idea of abandonment, I think, could, would include the idea of, you know, like, there's physical abuse going on, that sort of thing too. But anyway, let's go back to verse 16. Now, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Now, what if we were to take this and push this language a little bit too much? Can a wife save her husband? Can a husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Your husband's your savior? Your wife's your savior? You don't need Jesus as your savior? You see, if you push this language too far, you're going to get into 
Very, very serious error. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that by the influence of the believing party, the one who is unbelieving might become a believer. Pastor Keith, did you become a believer before Kim? So Pastor Keith becomes a believer. I remember his testimony. He became a believer. He trusted in the Lord. Well, what did you do with regard to your wife? Yeah, and what happened? She, the Lord, God, Lord saved her. How do you know, oh husband, whether you will save your wife? Don't divorce her. Keith, don't divorce Kim because you become a believer. Give her the gospel. Live before her in a way that is, is attractive. You may win her. And he did. That's what he's saying. It's the same thing that that the the Apostle Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where he says, "In In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That's what Paul's saying here. Same thing that Peter says in terminology that may be a little bit foreign to us today, 2,000 years later, but it was, I think, quite well understood by the Corinthians when they received it. And so when Dr. Greg Strawbridge says that we should regard the children of believers as saints and that we should baptize them and that we should rear them, teaching them to identify themselves as part of the body of Christ, and he points us, 1 Corinthians 7.14, as proof of that, I believe that that there's misunderstanding and a misapplication of this particular passage. There's no water in this passage. It's not about baptism. It's about a marriage relationship, and we can't read more into it than is there. Vic? I really like the fact that you highlighted the fact that whatever is meant by children there are holy, that same conclusion logic has to be applied to the unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife. I like that. And... And correct me if I'm wrong, but can't this simply be as simple as are positively influenced by for the unbelieving husband is positively influenced through his wife? Could be. I mean, and, and the, the other comment I was going to make is I suggest if you just take verse 14 for a pale Baptist, could you say that uh, uh, the issue with the unbel- the uneven yoking, if you will, that we could easily, isogenically, use that verse to say, well, you know, if you're saying that baptism applies to the child, then we can also say that uneven yoking is also legal. That you can pursue a, a, a mate that is an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. I mean, logically, can't you draw that same conclusion if you're going to isogenically yeah. this? Yeah. 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 Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you could say, well, listen, if my faith, it's just my faith and my faith alone somehow makes this person holy, sanctifies them, then, and they're an unbeliever, well, I'll just engage in a, in a relationship with an unbeliever and marry them because they'll be made holy by this marriage. Because that's the same logic. So, yeah. So, yeah, so it, it's it just, that's an example of how we need to be very careful that we don't start drawing conclusions and and making inferences from the text that are not good and necessary inferences and that lead you into contradiction to other clear passages of scripture. Okay, any Tom? 
Do you think Paul might have also been speaking to the Jewish Christians and then kind of going back to the Old Testament concerning cleanliness and uncleanliness, the children in marriage and so forth? Because, you know, if you assume someone in the Old Testament, they were clean, if they didn't, they were unclean. I'm just curious about the word unclean there. Yeah. If that was directed more also to the, to the Jewish converts. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a it is a word that could uh, have the idea of ceremonially being unclean, and probably a Jewish individual would would um, in fact think of that as being you know you you made them ceremonially unclean. Uh, they would be ceremonially unclean. Um, so that that could be part of the background of what's going on here. They're not unclean is what he's in essence implying. And what makes them, what makes them, what would make them unclean would be that if the marriage bond was invalid. What makes them clean is the valid marriage. Marriage was given, by the way, marriage was not given to fallen man. It was not given to believing man. Well, after the fall, it was given to man as man. It's a, it's a human institution. Now, God does, after the fall, restrict those who know him from being married to those who don't know him. But it's important to understand that marriage is a human institution. It's a divine institution given to man as man, not necessarily, not just a fallen man. It happened before the fall. Okay. All right. Um, well, we're going to go on. Next, uh, now here comes your the handout, and um, let me see. Okay, have a copy of that here. All right, so you have your handout. We're going to go on and look at the New Covenant. I don't know that we're going to have time to get all the way through this, but we'll get as far as we can and pick up where we leave off next week. The New Covenant is a critical um, thing that we need to understand when it comes to the issue of paedobaptism. And it has to do with what is the nature of the new covenant and what is the betterness of the new covenant. And uh, on your handout, uh, you have something that says thesis at the top, right? Okay, let's take a look at that, the thesis. The betterness of the new covenant involves a number of aspects, but they all point to the fact that all members of the new covenant are regenerate. This is what I believe the scriptures teach. The new covenant does not stop short of guaranteeing that all its members truly know the Lord. Like the nature of the atonement determines those who are included in it, the nature of the new covenant is what determines its betterness and determines those who are its members. Now here's the issue. The credo-baptist, which are, that's what I am, a credo, I believe in believer's baptism. Um, credo-baptist, the word credo meaning to believe, um, hold that all in the new covenant are regenerate. 
Paedo-Baptists hold that only some in the New Covenant are regenerate. Just like under the Old Covenant, that's the New Covenant is the same. Therefore, baptism can be applied to infant members of the New Covenant. They're members of the New Covenant by virtue of being born to at least one Christian parent. Therefore, infant, the, the baptism can be applied to infant members of the New Covenant, even though they may never come to faith and may eventually be lost. Infants become members by being born to at least one believing parent. Now, is that what the New Covenant teaches? Um, well, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to uh, determine whether or not that is, in fact, what the, the Scriptures teach. So, um, let me let me quote for you, by the way. Let me get that, find this quote here, very quickly. Uh, let's see, well, and I'll, I'll put this up later, but anyway, this is what uh, Dr. Greg Strawbridge, who, who has written on this and who debates on it from a Pado baptist perspective, and he says this, I want to emphasize once again that this problem of thinking the new covenant is different in its administrative function from the Old Testament by pointing out there is simply, I want to highlight this problem. He, wants, he says it's a problem to think that the new covenant is different in its administrative function than the Old Testament. He's going to highlight that by pointing out that there's simply no reason to believe that, given the New Testament's teaching that apostasy from the visible covenant is there. He goes on to say, this is a repeat, I'm just reminding you, that there are passages which include both regenerate and unregenerate in the kingdom and in the church, and so therefore we should reconsider this idea that the new covenant in some way teaches against infant baptism. Actually, it is the Paedo-Baptist who believes and has warrant that children are included in the new covenant, church, and the kingdom. So now if you got all that, the main point is, is this, that he says that this idea that the new covenant um, is different in its administrative function than the old covenant is a problem. They're not different, they're the same. Okay, so we're going to test that by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, Hebrews chapter 8. So, in your handout, you have the passage. I went ahead and typed that out for you. And what I want to do to begin with is I simply want to read it. I want to read these passages so that you will have an idea as to, you will, you'll be refreshed in your minds as to what the text actually is saying. So, let me get my uh, copy of this. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to, let me, let me get a copy from the back here right quickly. I'll read it from the second version that you are. <coughs> <coughs> Hebrews chapter 8, the apostle who wrote this, which I'm not sure who that was, but he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the, than the, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here he quotes from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. That's an interesting uh, textual variant there from the Hebrew, but anyway. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, and that is the Mosaic covenant that he's talking about here. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's Hebrews, just reading it. Let's go on and read what Paul says uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he again This whole chapter is about new covenant um, relationship. Let's read that. Now, in the context, there are those who were coming to the Corinthians claiming to be super apostles and who are trying to undermine Paul's ministry to the Corinthians and presenting their own, you know, versions of, of doctrine and things like that. And Paul is dealing with that sort of situation. So, uh, he begins by saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So we, are we like these these super apostles who are coming in who have these letters of recommendation? Are we like, do we need that? Do we need letters of recommendation to commend you, to commend ourselves to you? And he, he says, in essence, no, verse two, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. People can read you. You are, we came and preached the gospel to you. We became your father father in in the Lord. We brought you to Christ. You're our recommendation. We don't need a letter from somebody. Verse three, and you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Do tablets of stone remind you of some covenant in the past? The Mosaic covenant? huh? Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? New covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, what's the ministry of death? Written on tablets of stone. Mosaic covenant, right? 
But after the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The new covenant is exactly the same as the old covenant, right? There's no difference. We don't want to talk about any difference in administration. Verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Hebrews says, they shall all know me. I will write my law in their hearts. What was the case under Moses? The veil remains. Their heart, it wasn't written on their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I almost could just stop right there. <laughs> but this is such, the new covenant is so glorious <laughs> that we're not going to stop there. And we'll have to continue uh, next week. But if you look at your handout, we're going to look at the nature of the new covenant. And we're going to see some glorious and marvelous things that will just cause us to, to worship. Um, look at your handout. And you see the first blank there. The nature of the new covenant. The nature of the new covenant. Well, the first point is and this is really important. The first point is, who is the mediator of the new covenant? Who is the mediator? It's mediated, the mediatorial work of Jesus. Hebrews 9.15 says, therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 12.24, but you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the mediator. He is the mediator of this covenant. Unlike Moses, a human fallen man, Jesus, the God-man, is a mediator of the new covenant. And what about the foundation? Point two, the foundation is the blood of Jesus. Luke 22, verse 20. We read this often when we have the Lord's Supper. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, uh, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is in his blood. Same thing that Matthew says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The foundation of the new covenant is in the blood of Christ. And by his blood shedding, we receive forgiveness of sins. And so we are reminded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, just like we did last week. The foundation of the new covenant is in the blood of Jesus, unlike the Mosaic covenant where the foundation there was the blood of animals. Well, we're going to go on next week and deal with the third point. You don't have to come back next week to find out what that is. But do I have any questions at this point? Um, you can already kind of, I think, get a sense of where we're going to be going with this. But um, when you think about the, the significance of the new covenant and how much better it is than the old, there is glory there. And we're going to have to look at that more next week. Any questions? Okay, well, just in closing again. <clears throat> Aren't we so thankful that we have, that we are members of a covenant that has a blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel? Aren't you thankful that we can go to Christ who shed his blood in our behalf and have our sins forgiven? Aren't you thankful that we have a blood that actually does what the giver of that blood intends for it to do? And it's not a hope so. It is a secure, sure thing. And so as we depart today, we depart rejoicing in the blood of Christ Rejoice that you have a mediator who stands between you and God. God who is holy, you who are unholy. And you've got a mediator who stands between you and who shed his blood that you might be in a right relationship with the holy God of this universe. So rejoice in that this day. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you that even from eternity past, you had determined that Jesus would come and shed his blood, the blood of the new covenant, and there would be a new covenant that would accomplish all that all the old covenant could not do. Thank you that it's been done, and that we live on the other side of the cross. May we worship you now. In spirit and in truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.